Welcome back, listeners, to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. It's the show where we talk about parenting and neurodiversity in an affirming way. So today's episode you'll be interested in because it's going to be about the journey of parent advocacy and neurodiversity in the USA-based education system. And I'm not alone for this episode. I have a special guest. Her name is Destiny Huff. That's H-U-F-F. You can find her just like I did on Instagram. And let me give you that handle. Her Instagram is Destiny Huff underscore IEP underscore advocate. Or you can contact her at her website at www.destinyhuffconsulting.com. She is currently offering free 30-minute consultations. So if you are interested, please contact her. So who is she? So for me, my dyslexic self, I'm going to let you know I see letters. So she's an MS, LPC, CPCS, but we can call her a neurodivergent military spouse and mother of two boys. She runs a private practice as a licensed professional counselor and a certified trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapist in the mental health field. She's also running Destiny Huff Consulting and is a special education parent advocate and IEP or Individualized Education Plan coach. So please tell us, how are you doing today, Destiny? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. You are, I have to shout you out. You're the first person to fill out my guest form. So thank you so much. (laughs) Of course. And also I want to let you know that this will be airing in October. And if you go on Destiny's Instagram, she started last year in October. So congratulations. You're about to have one year. How does that feel? Yes, it is surprising. Time is going by fast. Yes. (laughs) And also, I want to shout out that we are in the same location in America, but she is not limited to our state. She helps all parents all over the 50 states. So definitely follow her and reach out to her. But I want, I'm burning to ask because I know my journey to neurodiversity was very strange and not straightforward, but how was your journey to finding neurodiversity? Oh, so... It started when my son entered into public school, into kindergarten, and we were just having a lot of struggles and trying to implement supports for him. And then he received his own diagnosis, and him and I are two sides of the same coin. And anyone that knows me, we've always said that, like, me and him are just alike, um, me and my oldest. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, is there something that I'm missing here? Why did I miss this as a mental health professional? You know, as parents, we start asking those questions. But as a mental health professional, I had that added layer of like, I feel like I should have known um, that, you know, he was autistic. And so that led me to my own journey of just really educating myself on autism, ADHD, neurodivergence, neurodiversity, Um, and all those different components and what falls under that umbrella and recognizing all of the common overlap in diagnoses and realizing that is why it was missed and how it's so commonly missed in women um, and so how it's so commonly missed in, you know, our BIPOC community. So all of that combined um, 
you know, led me to seek out my own diagnosis and start implementing my own supports, which is what led to the autism ADHD diagnosis for myself. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, your story, I have to say, I've seen a lot of IEP coaches on Instagram and not all of their accounts draw me in. I want to point out that yours really drawed me in because you are so authentic. You're real. You're not just one of these like moms of a kid with this such and such thing at the end of their name. You are understanding that you are neurodivergent yourself. You see it in your child. And then you're using your own background to help you become a better parent. Um, I have to ask, like, did that information help you become a better therapist? Oh, a thousand percent. I, I always wanted to work with children. And um, so I wanted to be a teacher at first. And my mom works in education. And so all of our teachers out there and educators out there, you know, the, the struggle encompassed with that. And so she actually was like, no, do something else. Like, <laughs> I think you should do something else. Um, and I took a psychology class my senior year of high school and I fell in love with it, which I later learned was because it helped me really understand people better mm. and understand nonverbals better and better understand relationships and why people interact the way they do. Um, but that really led to me becoming a mental health professional. And I'm always learning and looking into things. And so, of course, when everything started with my son, I was like, we need to absolutely know everything that's going on so we can advocate for him because, you know, you're your kid's advocate. Yes. And so we were blessed enough to have a um, Black clinical psychologist and educational psychologist who had experience working with Black children and mm -hmm. Black boys who are neurodivergent. And yes. so um, me being black, because I'm realizing people are listening to this and they may now see my profile. That, you know, um, that's inclusive. So, <laughs> you know, um, and with my son, right, that was a big thing because immediately after talking with us and meeting with him, he, his um, therapist at the time, she immediately was like, hey, have you guys thought about autism? And so we were like, what? And so that led us to do research and she sent us things to read and to understand. And then that eventually led to, okay, this is what autism can look like. I had already known a lot of individuals with ADHD. Then that led to neurodiversity, neurodivergence. Then it was like, oh, there's another N-word, neuroaffirming. <laughs> so I was like, okay, what does this neuroaffirming mean? And in that process was actually how I found your Instagram account. Oh, yeah. Thank um, you. The <laughs> neuroaffirming parent. And I was like, okay, so what is this? And that led me to, you know, really start looking at articles and research, but also looking at different social media handles to really get an understanding of what it is and then just start doing a deep dive. And so one of the things my husband said is that autism and neurodivergence became one of my special interests because yes, <laughs> now right? I like am constantly reading about it. I'm constantly learning about it. And then I'm taking that and keeping that in mind with my mental health clients, which has led a lot of them who had suspected neurodivergence um, to be comfortable to say, hey, can we talk about this and what this looks like? 
And a lot of them, particularly female, I see all types of clients, um, but a lot of my female clients have been late diagnosed with ADHD within the past um, few months because of the understanding of what it is and going in and getting that testing done for themselves. Yes. And you know what? That's so important because that's in my family. My mom, she, well, she, she just admits that she has ADHD traits, but she wasn't fully diagnosed with everything until she was 56. Before that, it was just, oh, you're clinically depressed. Oh, you know, this and that. And for my mom, she has a lot of stigma when it comes to mental health because she grew up in the 70s. There were still institutions where hospitals would just take your kids. Like, you know, you run away from home so many times. You know, there's affirming parents now that talk about elopement out in public. Back right. in the day, that was just running away, runaways. And we still have the, the picture that my grandma made when my mom is 14 and she ran from home. And my grandma had to give it to the police to go find her. But my mom doesn't really have any bad memories of these places. Her, She still keeps in touch with one of her best friends um, that taught her how to write a checkbook. And really, it was just like a place for neurodivergent teenagers. They hung out. They learned from each other. So once it came in the 80s, when my sister was born and school, because people don't realize, like, there was an influx of ADHD diagnosis in the 80s. But my mom was scared of what that would mean and also the responsibility once your kid is identified, because she said that she took her to a therapist one time and the therapist was like, well, to help her, because my sister, she's just not really distracted, but like she couldn't stay on task. And the, the therapist was like, well, you need to get a timer and like keep her on task and it's your responsibility. And my mom was like, I don't want to do that. So my sister only got diagnosed with like anxiety or depression until like two years ago, she finally got her ADHD diagnosis. And mm -hmm. for me, I feel so happy for her. And, you know, there's like a whole community online now of adults with ADHD mm -hmm. and cause she needed that community in school. Like she didn't yeah. have that in the nineties or the two thousands. It was just like, oh, well, you're the loner. You don't get along with this group. Like, right. It was so hard. Yeah, and I was I was the, the kid that me and my sister talk about this a lot. And the more you learn, I was the, the kid that I could fit into any group, but I didn't necessarily have a core group. Yeah. And, you know, finding out that that can be very common for autistic girls in that we can mold and mask and shape into whichever group. But when it comes down to it, we have our set friends that we interact with and engage with. And so my, you know, finding out about my neurodivergence was like a reflection of, you know, my mom was like, you started reading, you know, before you enter school, you enter school at four. I tested into kindergarten because she was like, she needs to be in someone's school. Like she's so smart. <laughs> like she, there, there's no reason for her to wait till she's five. So it, it led to this whole, like, I could have graduated from high school when I was 16. My mom was like, no, um, you know, I don't want her to, because we then want her to go to college. Right. Yep. She's like, so I, but I still ended up going to college at 17 years old. I remember like having to get my parents permission on stuff because I wasn't of legal age yet um, while I was actively in college and then like taking AP classes and, you know, all those things are, you know, when girls are considered gifted, 
And so it led to, and I have multiple degrees. And so it's this level of significantly high masking. And I would have these periods of burnout. And, and that was the biggest thing. And I was just constantly like, why am I having these periods of burnout? Right. Yes. You have these periods of burnout. You're seeking out support because anyone that is a a therapist knows that, um, they always recommend for you to do therapy. So, and now it's a part of a lot of grad school programs. So I was getting my degree. We had to do therapy so that we could one tackle our own stuff. Right. So we don't bring that into therapy sessions with clients. But also, too, to understand what the experience can be like for a client, to understand how they have to open up and disclose all of these things. And so I've done therapy throughout my life, um, starting when I went to college, because my parents were, my dad was military, and so they were actually stationed overseas, and I was in the United States. Oh, wow. I had been with my family, like, this whole time, where this unit, it's four of us, my mom and dad, my sister, with this unit, right? My entire life and at 17 years old, I'm in the United States and they're overseas. Ooh. So the adjustment and transition was hard. And so that's kind of where the, you know, depression, anxiety, but not really getting a tackle on it and going through these lulls of like, I'm pushing through because I am so determined. I'm so good at masking. I'm so good at getting things done because this is what I have to do. And then eventually leading into, you know, oh, there's something else going on here because I'm a mental health professional and I see it, but I can't quite put my finger on because I've been to mental health professionals and they're telling me, oh, it's depression, it's anxiety. You had a baby, like Mm, you had another baby. And so, you you know, you have all these events that you go through and even um, prior to uh, marrying my husband and um, I had, uh, colorectal cancer oh. and, um, that was just a sudden, that's like, huge. Yeah. yeah the symptoms like went on for so long, but I was so young that it was, it was unexpected. And so they got everything removed and congratulations. Like, Thank you. Like I didn't have to do chemo. Cause the doctor was like, this should have happened in the first place. So we're yes. not even gonna, I'm not going to subject you to that because you haven't had children and you say you want to have children and I don't want to cause any damage in that area. Like we will just continue to do your checkups. And thankfully I've still been clear from because this was back in 2013, but you know, I had all these significant life events happen. And so me being again, learning to be a mental health professional, becoming a mental health professional, I thought I knew, okay, I'm having all these big life events. That's what it is. Um, and then, you know, going through the initial trauma of the school system with our son, having not been diagnosed and experiencing that trauma and him being traumatized from how they were treating him. Um, you know, again, that's another significant event. Yes. And so it wasn't until the, you know, I like to say like the fog cleared, everything lifted theoretically we were all in a good place that I was like okay what is happening here that I don't want to do the things I'm supposed to do or feel like I should do um, but I'm doing things I have to do and that's when I at that point had recognized this is burnout mm-hmm. autistic and ADHD burnout um, culminated with an OCPD diagnosis so <laughs> And let's talk about how that's so hard when 
immediately when you're a wife, right? Like what does society tell you? Okay. I need to, you know, put my family first, take care of my husband. Then kids come along and they're like, okay, well, I need to take care of my kids and we're put on the back burner and, you know, people are nice and they're like, well, you know, self-care do this, but it's hard <laughs> when mm -hmm. like, and I've talked to people online, like, it's not saying that like our parents raised us to be people pleasers, but when you have all these intersecting elements, it's, it's a way that you learn how to cope and you learn how to survive. And you know that, oh, well, at least if people are around me are happy, I feel happy. So I, I commend you so much because that is so much to deal with. And you think that you're checking off the boxes. You're like, listen, I got the career. I got the husband. I got the kids. Right. What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, and the way I always explain it to my clients too, is that you have to look at a lot of times the generations. And when you have those, when you have parents that are involved in your life, invested in your life, doing the best that they can, I always say that you see the shift in priorities and generations. And so I would say that my grandparents, you know, our grandparents, my parents, parents generation, it was about finding some type of sustainability, you yes. know, have a job, pay the bills, keep a roof over your kid's head, keep them in clothes, keep them in school. Like that was really their focus. And then I feel like our parents came along. So these are, you know, they're born in the sixties and seventies. So they're parenting in the eighties and nineties. And they, I feel felt the need to build a connection or relationship with their children. Yes. Like they felt the need to have some type of bond to where, you know, their children will want to be around them. Right. Yeah. But in that, they also wanted to continue that sustainability and not just live, you know, from check to check. I feel like they wanted to be comfortable. So that led to this work mentality that they then invested in all of us 80s and 90s kids. Yes. And so then we- Latchkey kids. Up, <laughs> yes. So like we grew up like, okay, I need to work to be comfortable, like do enjoyable things, but you have to work. Like you have to grind. Like that's what you have to do. But then we also added that extra layer of mental health. Because yes. we recognize the struggles that our grandparents, our parents had, that we had. So we are more cognizant of our kids' mental health. And, you know, I think that they will then carry that on and their generation will be even more focused, hopefully, on that self-care aspect. Because I think we're all just learning now in our late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, early 40s to self-care. Yes. Well, now I want to talk about generations for a minute because I, I put a question in my questionnaire of what myth you'd like to bust. And you said you definitely want to stop, you know, this myth of, oh, autistic individuals can't be successful and have families because you are a living example, right? And you're not alone. <laughs> so how did it make you feel, you know, obviously in the school setting, knowing what you know and knowing what you know for yourself and hearing the conflicting statements, how do you feel about the generations of our children that are hearing those conflicting statements? I mean, I think at first it was frustrating to me as a mental health professional because I was there as a parent. I kept getting treated as a professional until I said something they didn't agree with. Mm. That was the really frustrating part. So a big label they kept trying to place on my son was oppositional defiant disorder, mm. which is commonly placed on 
black and brown children. Yes. And I was like, I may not know the education system at this, this point. And I may not understand how you all navigate things, but I do know. Can you tell me what was their recommendation if they were going to give him that identification? The recommendation was just that he needed, um, I needed to get him some outside help. That was the recommendation. So excuses. Yeah. Excuses. The therapy and I, or, and, or ABA because the behavior he was displaying is not consistent with what they've seen in all their years of an autistic child. Which we know that's not true. They just say that because my, yes. <laughs> my daughter had that same experience and, you know, we really connect because, and I want to say like, I know I feel so guilty when I tell people my story because, and me and my husband go through it in episode two, but the school wanted to use idea, not in the right way. They want to manipulate it and designate my daughter with educational autism, which, and we can talk about it more about IEPs because that's a big thing is there's a difference. If you get an outside medical diagnosis, unfortunately, that does not guarantee you support in schools. You still have to have a meeting, go through the process and then have an IEP meeting and the school and you and supposed to be in collaboration, but really the school agrees to what category you choose. And right. you can go on the IDEA website, IDEA, and see all the categories and like, how do you get to that process? But until you do, like Destiny's saying, you start to hear roadblocks. And for us, whenever I mentioned giftedness, I got eye rolls. When I mentioned dyslexia, I got eye rolls. And what we know from the child fine law is the school is responsible legally to find these kids in their community, even when they're 18 months old. So the fact that they put the responsibility on the parent to get outside help just infuriates me. But also when they get mad at a parent's observation or a professional opinion, because I'm not sure if you experienced this, but they refused to say my name. They would say, well, mom, mama. And I would have to interject and say, excuse me. No, I am Mrs. So-and-so like (laughs) I am a parent here. Um, And if you go on IEP websites, um, like they even say, like, it breaks my heart. They say, print out a picture of your child and put it in these meetings. And I'm like, you shouldn't have to remind these people who they're talking to, but you do. You do. Yeah. They, and for me, it was more like, they would say, well, you're a mental health professional. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm aware I did the training. (laughs) Like (laughs) I did the schooling. I actively practice it. Um, What ideas do you have? And so I found, I wanted you to do their job for them. They did. And I, and I, me and my husband talked about how he was like, it's double pressure for you because you feel like you have to be on as a mental health professional Mm. and as his mother. And so then of course, if it's double pressure, it's, it's double crushing, right? When it's not working, it's not effective. And you feel like twice the failure. Well, I have a question for you because I know how I felt going into the school meetings. Like I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, this is my taxpayer money. These people work for me. They should be on my side. And then I quickly found out they weren't. And I've seen a shift in the IEP community of starting to tell parents going in, don't assume that they're on your side. So I want your opinion of how you feel about it. I mean, I always, so just the same way that I always say when it comes to neurodivergence, presume competence, Yes. right? 
I always feel like when you go into an IEP meeting, I always say, assume that everyone is there for the child. The reason why I say that is because I think that seeing both sides of the table, I've worked in the school as a mental health professional. I have family and friends who are educators. Um, I have family and friends who are school psychologists. And so I've, I've seen both sides where you can see this disengagement from a parent Mm. the same way that you can see and you you know and sometimes that's because they feel like they don't have a dog in the fight as I say it like they feel like you're gonna do what you want to do anyway so why should I even you know bring that effort or you'll see the opposite you'll see a teacher who is you know removed from the situation because they've had bad experiences in trying to advocate or support. So I'm always a big proponent of going there, assuming everyone is there for the child, because that opens your ears and allows you to be able to listen in a non-biased way. Because at the end of the day, the parent is going to be the most emotional person at that table. That's your child. That's your baby. Like you want what's best for them. And even if they want what's best for them, hearing that your child hit a teacher is not going to make you happy. Like it's going to make you sad. It's going to make you question yourself as a parent. And, you know, and, but what you want to do too is question the situation. You want to understand the triggers. You want to communicate and collaborate. So I am always like, go in there with the assumption that We are all here for the child and then allow them to show you whether they are or are not. And then you respond accordingly. (laughs) Yes. And also I want to point out a lot of your great posts remind people if they tell you something and it seems like, "Hmm," get it in writing, document, document, document. document. I mean, I, so, so anyone that, that is a mental health professional (laughs) that has had any mental health professional training. We're literally told if you do not document it, it did not happen, period. And so I take that into everything that I do. I am very big on email communication. I'm very big on expressing my concerns through communication. I'm very big on whether it's a positive or a negative. And a lot of people don't recognize that. Um, my youngest son just entered into the public school system in kindergarten. He came from um, a center on the military base and they did a phenomenal job. He had a difficult transition. We came from another state Mm. and they worked with him and they worked with us and we all collaborated. And so they have with military bases, um, they have what's called, oh my gosh, that's escaping me. ICE, they have an ICE comment that you can get. It's called an ICE comment. And it's, you can, you, you can do it in positive or negative. And a lot, most most people use it for negative, just like any feedback, right? Yeah. Most people are going to use like, you need to know this is messed up. But I always make it a point when we leave our duty stations, um, which is where military families are stationed at, you know, call them duty stations or bases in the army. Whenever we leave one, I make a point to let that center know, I appreciate your staff. I appreciate their, you know, if I, if we had a positive experience, because they are helping me with my children, they're helping my children learn and grow. And so they did a phenomenal job. And I sent an ice comment saying like, thank you so much. I named his teachers. And you were like probably the first like positive one. (laughs) So they were like, yay. (laughs) Well, yeah. And so then I actually got a personalized email back from their um, supervisor, like outside of the center saying, 
thank you for recognizing all their hard work. And I'm like, no, because that matters. So that documentation, communication, all of that matters, you know, communicating with that IEP team, that matters. If you have a question or concern, even if it's, and and once they work with you, they if they're receptive, they learn how you navigate. So I send an email saying, hey, is my son seeing his speech therapist? Well, it's the same speech therapist as my youngest that had my oldest last year and has him this year. And that so of course they is so good. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, he is. He just hasn't learned her name yet because he transitioned from a private speech therapist to the in-school speech therapist. Um, and then the speech therapist, knowing me, not responded as well. Aside from the special education teacher was like, hey, mom, this is what we're working on. And oh, this is what you'll so be nice. seeing homework home for because they have worked with me now for a year. They know how I am. They know that I'm going to communicate. They know I'm going to ask questions. They know I'm going to check behind. Yes. So, <laughs> so yes, document, document, document. And thank you so much for sharing that story because it's so important for our listeners to hear. And I definitely wanted to go ahead and ask you, are are there a few things that knowing what you know now that you wish you, you might've changed before? Oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, What I, so just to kind of like, lightly shortly go through my son's journey to his IEP um what happened was prior to school starting me and my husband had some concerns due to perfectionist thinking black or white thinking things that I share with him that we had been working on while he was in the child development center um because we knew that the structure was going to change going from like a preschool in a you know daycare setting to a structured setting in the school setting And so I proactively was like, hey, I want to have a meeting. I spoke to his teacher. She was like, cool, let's do it. And I want to point out that, you know, a lot of people's, everyone's experience is different. And in our experience, our son's teacher was not the problem. And so I really want to stress that for us, that was not our experience. The problem was administration. Um, Well, I can say something to that because we didn't have a problem with my daughter's teacher until admin got involved that's when it shifted (laughs) and there was a lot and there was a lot of disconnect in communication and admin telling us one thing and telling you know um the teacher something different and then us of course communicating together and realizing it was different so um but we tried to already start out with a meeting and support it took requesting that meeting three times um i continued to verbally request it not documenting right and requesting it via email finally had the meeting then we got to a point where we wanted a functional behavior assessment done and a behavior plan to implement supports for him and requesting that um verbally again being told no he doesn't need it it's fine um and then you fast forward and at this point we come back from christmas break we've now had to have three or four meetings regarding behaviors and concerns um, and his behavior has escalated to things we've never seen before. Um, and he's suspended three times in two weeks and he's suspended by nine o'clock. They start school at seven forty-five. So by nine o'clock, he's having to be picked up. He's coming back from a day suspension, getting suspended two days, coming up from two days, getting suspended three days. And was this and documented or was it them just telling this you? Was to documented. Oh, this wow. was documented. And the school, um, school out days. And the federal holidays did not count in those days. 
So imagine how many days he was actually out of school. Um, and so that's when we got an advocate involved. Um, and how did you deal with that though? Because I feel like schools do that and they don't think about the parents at all. So did you have so, like family support? So we didn't have family support there um, because our family was so we're from Georgia and then I was a military brat. So I grew up all over the place. And my husband's dad was in the military when he was younger, um, but he mainly grew up in Georgia. And so our family was in Georgia and we were in Louisiana. Hmm. And so we did not have that family support. But, you know, when you're military, you do build a support around you. Um, yeah. Thankfully, two of my best friends who were not in that same state, though, they had children on IEPs. Um, one of my best friends, she worked, she worked in the school system in different roles and capacities. Uh, so I was able to tap into my network of resources that weren't directly there to kind of tell me and having worked in a school as well. One of my friends is a school social worker. Oh, cool. um, so I was able to reach out to her and they were able to tell me like, Destiny, this is not how things are supposed to be being done. Um, right. So they really spearheaded me getting an advocate. They spearheaded me. I'm one of um, my friends. Uh, she was my friend's wife at the time. And we actually weren't friends yet. We became friends <laughs> in this process. She's a teacher. And I actually was able to send her my email that I wanted to send to them. And she restructured it. And what she told me was, she was like, Destiny, you're being too nice. Mm. She was like, because, and she was like, you're being too nice because this email needs to be based in facts. Yeah. Those suspensions were facts. That is what they did. They suspended him. Like she was like, and you need to state it as in what is the plan going to be now that you've done this? Yes. And so she was like, you're not being rude in the email. You're not being mean. She was like, this is just a fact of what happened. Well, and let's so pause that- right there because- what do autistic people get judged for being too direct? But then what do you need an IEP to be direct? (laughs) And this is the thing. And I say this all the time. And my sister and my husband laugh when I say this, I'm like, when I am not like when I'm direct and I feel that I'm not being mean, right. They're like, Whoa, that was kind of harsh. So then when I turn in certain situations, overcorrect is what I call it. And, you know, basically remove any type of directness or potential tone out of it. Then I'm told I'm being too nice. And I'm yes. like, that's the ultimate struggle is like that. You can't balance. win. You cannot win. Right. And so, you know, and my sister during this process, um, she works in education as well. And so does my mother. And so during this process, my sister even was like, you are being too nice. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to take into account that you're an educator, right? And mommy's an educator, right? And so it's like, I'm trying, and she was like, and I understand that. She was like, but the things that have happened, she's like, we would not have done those things. And since they have done those things, they have earned the right for you to be direct, straightforward and call it what it is. And ultimately for our experience, what happened was my husband went to the school board Mm. and he was just like, look, um they're trying to kick my kid out of school they're not supporting him and we were going through the special education process so we signed the special education paperwork and the same day he was suspended wow and so I didn't know that he had protections because we signed the paperwork even so that's what I mean like when you talk about that what what you don't know and so that's when I was just like 
Destiny, you have 12 more years of school and your youngest child has not even entered school. Um, you need to learn this. And so a lot of my, that's why a lot of my Instagram posts, I always say are what some people might consider really like basic knowledge. But for me, I did not know it because I did not have a child in special education. And so when I entered into it and I found out there are these laws and there are these rules. And I was like, had I known this, my experience would have been very different because I would have been able to say, you're not complying with the law which is ultimately what was going on. They were not complying with the law, but we didn't know. Well, another thing is I love about your page is that you you encourage parents to do their own research. And it's not so much to be like blase, like, well, you know, look it up yourself. It's And I feel that so much because my daughter's school got mad just because I went on the DOE website and I looked at the curriculum and I looked at what should have been going on. And when I asked questions, I saw, and I found on the website, there was a hotline. There was a hotline made for parents with questions and I called and I asked and Mm -hmm. in an IEP meeting, the admin for the school said, we didn't appreciate when she called the state on us. And me and my husband looked at each other and we're like, so what you hiding? Like, (laughs) no, but really that is the thing. And, and, you know, and that's why like, I, and I, you know, I, I always say, I think it's my autism and like that being very straightforward. And that's why when I tell my story, you know, um, during my son's that my son's school year during that time he ended up having two teachers because Mm -hmm. his first teacher ended up leaving wow and it was right as we were getting into the nitty-gritty of the special education evaluation process and she made a point of speaking to me and saying i really want you to know and i wish i they had kind of prevented her from talking to the parents of course meeting that same day And she's like, I really want you to know that this has nothing to do with this process. I love my students. I'm going to miss my kids. Um, And she was a military spouse and she came from another state where she was a teacher. Um, And so she was going through the process of getting her license and stuff in that state. And she was just like, but this school district is just no. And she was just like, I'm thank you for all that you've taught me because I've taken what you've taught me and used it with all the kids in my classroom, you know? Um, And then his teacher after that, she had no idea my child was even on an IEP because when she came in, he had an IEP. She didn't know he had been diagnosed autistic. Like, and so once we had a meeting and I said that, um, she was like, that makes sense. She was like, some of the responses he was having, she, she was actually a special education teacher doing a general education teacher role because they didn't have a special education teacher Mm. open. So she had worked with autistic children before. And she was like, I thought he was, she was like, but you never say that to a parent, you know, because, you know, she's like, but thank you for confirming that. She was like, because that makes me understand how to approach my, how I interact and engage with him and the supports I provide. And she was excellent as well. Um, but the fact that we had to tell her he was on an IEP, he had a communication log, you know, um, it was very disheartening. And so when we moved and we started his first grade year and we met the team and, you know, I was kind of like, okay, I like the approach. I remember my husband when we left going, we'll see how they follow his IEP and how they approach the situation because he was just like, I'm oh you're jaded oh you're totally jaded like he was like until I see even when our youngest started school this year he's on an IEP as well um my husband was like after we met the teachers at open house he was like 
we'll see how they follow the IP. Like, he's just like, I, I need to see it to believe it because I'm so jaded by that traumatic experience. And as a mental health professional, I can say, honestly, we experienced trauma from that situation to the point where I, we lived off the base and I could not leave the base to yes. go home to eat lunch because I was fearful that they were going to call me. Yes. And I would have anxiety and panic attacks about leaving the base. Yes. So it just was not, was not a great situation. Well, that's something we can talk about because I saw another account post about how, how she feels and her experience, even though she's a neurodivergent mom about the stress of school meetings. And I don't think people realize the level of normalization that anxiety and stress has become when you're a parent, because in my community, I mean, I'll be honest, it's very puzzle piece, but it's almost normalized for the school to bully families and even into the point of separation. Like there's very rarely couples that are supportive or, you know, like my situation, usually the mom has to stay home to be the primary caregiver, even if their kid's in public school. And that's the shift that I love about neuroaffirming is I see more, it's not just about parenting, it's a better communication to the parents themselves. And just like you said, like your husband, it's not like you're dealing with it on his own. He sees it firsthand too. Right. And my husband even made a mention, because honestly, he used to work for that school district, but the way they addressed him in a school meeting was 180 different from where they addressed me. They totally were okay with dismissing me, gaslighting me, and not taking me seriously. They they recommended that I take my daughter to a brain balance center. They recommended that we do vision therapy. Even before she was identified, this was just regular SST school meetings, which is funny because it's like, why were you so quick to deny my daughter dyslexia when you were happy to offer all these services that were outside of the school and recommend those? And I'm like, who knows if you're getting kickbacks. But as soon as the IEP came into play, it was just no after no after no. Right. And I and I always say, too, it's just like with the mental health community and the mental health community, you'll see a lot of terms and things still use that um it's like oh you're pulling from an old like so we have the di <laughs> diagnostic statistical manual yeah. and we're like oh you're pulling out from the old diagnostic statistical manual like that's not even used anymore or like the definition of ptsd and who can be diagnosed with that has changed over the years and it used well to and you're legally to obligated to keep up the schools i don't think right. they are right <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's like, you you know, like with the, with the PTSD diagnosis, it was like, you used to have to quote unquote, experience the trauma directly. Then they started to realize you're having individuals that are witnessing traumatic things happen to others. And that is traumatizing. Yes. So then they adjusted it to say that you don't have to experience it directly. You can witness something traumatic, then it becomes traumatic for you. So it's the same with the school system. A lot of times the things that people prescribe to is older. It's what they're used to. It's what they well, know. What's, it's what works for right, them. that too. So the biggest one I see is when you talk about oppositional defined disorder mm. and the PA profile for autism. Yes. When you start to recognize that the PDA profile 
presents that way due to dysregulation, due to, you know, struggles with sensory. When you start to realize it's due to the wiring, right? Because that's what it means when you're talking about neurodivergence, you know, and And it's not curable. It's not. (laughs) Right. And it's not. And and I always say, I always say as parents and and we all struggle with this. And I want to clarify, like, by no means, even being a mental health professional and being neurodivergent, Am I the perfect parent that just never has a big response or reaction to situations? But I think when we stop looking at children as doing things to spite us. Yes. And look at why are they doing it? And I always say, why, 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 why? Even prior to neural affirming and, you know, I looked at behavior and I have always tried to understand why does anyone do what they do? And I think that that is something that is often missing when we're talking about the school system, when we're talking about disabilities, um, so much so that you see those that do want to know. Um, I have given trainings at conferences on how mental health presents in the school setting. Mm. And since learning about neurodiversity, neuroaffirming, neurodivergence, I have added that piece into my trainings. Yes. And I get so many special education professionals and teachers and individuals that work in districts going, oh my gosh, I wish this was what we had for professional development because they were like, yes, this is what we need to learn because you're talking about real time things that we're dealing with that we don't receive training on. And that's how you see these dysregulated children being attempted to be addressed by dysregulated adults. Well, and I'll tell you, I keep up with my local school to see if they're getting any better, to see if there's a possibility of my daughter returning. And the nail in the coffin was, like you're talking about, I expected to see some kind of neurodiversity professional development, some kind of, you know, talking about ACEs, because my husband, he gets professional development in his job and they talk about it. But no, their picture was a self-help business book for the special education department. And they called that professional development (laughs) and I was just like okay so you're just publicly telling people you're just in it for the money because like there's so much free resources like I'm thankful you told me about the CDC updated everything for autism Mm -hmm. and then they even have a whole section for children behavior and mental health and they say behavior is communication and behavior is supposed to be an opportunity for parents and teachers to learn more about that child. You're not immediately supposed to, which is funny because they even recommend behavior training, not for the child, but for the adult. (laughs) And I'm like, how come schools haven't, you know what I'm saying? You know, we have that in animal training now, like Uh you have the famous like dog whisperer and he never trains the dog. He trains the dog owner. Uh So it's like, if we know that behaviorism has evolved and we have neuroscience and we have cognitive therapy and we know modeling is so huge, why aren't the adults that have the capability to learn this information taking advantage of it? And I think, and I think too, you know, we have to look at that pushback because I know with, again, with my son's situation, his teacher and I were communicating and she was implementing things that I was providing her with from my knowledge of supporting free professional development. (laughs) Right. And the disconnect for us was 
we didn't know he was autistic. Mm. So it was that struggle of like, why is this technique working this day? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not working this day. And it was because of that dysregulation, but also because he was autistic. So we weren't taking into account the way in which he was perceiving the situation. Um, and, and my so- question to that is why, if I had like, let's just say I ran a school and you were a parent and we were having difficulties with your son and we knew you were a mental health professional, why wouldn't they bring you in and ask like, Hey, have you seen this in your practice? What are things that you would recommend? Are there things that we're doing good? Are there things that we're doing bad? You know what I'm saying? Like, why wouldn't they bring you well, in as an expert? Well, because then you're opening the door for the parent to see how you actually engage with the children. True. And you have to be open to that feedback and that criticism. And a lot of people, regardless of what profession you're in, are not open to that. True. They're not open to hearing that what they've been doing doesn't work. They're not open to hearing that there is actual research to demonstrate what could be more effective in a more supportive way. They're not open to those type of things. Like, what is the biggest push right now in 2023? It's for people to receive understanding, training, and education by neurodivergent individuals. Yes. And you will still have people that hire individuals who are not neurodivergent, even though we are showing our faces and proving that we are educated, we do have the degrees. It's not not just the lived experience, if that's what you care about, because some people want the education piece with the lived experience. You have individuals that have the lived experience. You're having people that are taking their lived experience and turning that into education, right? Yes. And they will still hire someone who does not have that. And and I I will say this until the cows come home. And I say this as a mental health professional. I say this as a special education parent advocate. I say this as a neurodivergent individual. And I say this as a mother of neurodivergent children. You only know what you know if you've lived it. Yes. What I mean by that is, is that no matter how much I have learned about bipolar disorder as a mental Mm -hmm. health professional, I will never know what it's like to live with it. Well, and I had to make a post about that because somebody got mad at me. And you know, you probably know why, because they're, you know, they were that one of those kind of moms, but I told them, I was like, no, ma'am, you like, you have to distinct, like, if you have a lived experience, that's your lived experience. Mm-hmm. But if your child has autism or dyslexia or anything, that is their lived experience. Mm-hmm. Your experience through them is learned. It is not lived. You cannot, I mean, we can try as much as we want to live vicariously through our children, but it's not going to happen. And I love the post that you make the other day where it was like, if you're having issues with your kid, ask your kid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think, and I say this, I'm like, in general, you know, a lot of my posts are geared towards autism and then ADHD and then and speech. And I have a lot of um, speech language pathologists that follow me because my youngest son has a speech delay. That's where his journey started. So we started early intervention with him. And then both of my children had um, social emotional developmental delay for their IEPs initially. And so, you know, that's where my area is. And as a mother, right? Yes. I have the lived experience. If I was not neurodivergent, which I am, (laughs) I have the lived experience of being the mother of an autistic child, the mother of a child with ADHD, right? 
Yes. And, you know, I think that's really the disconnect is like, and I liken it to the military. I'm a military spouse. Mm. And we come across a lot of spouses that are, they wear their husband's rank. And it's like, (sighs) at the end of the day, I did not serve. I did not, I did not put on a uniform. My husband served. So as much as I understand the life of a military spouse, just like my kids understand the life of a military connected child. I also understand the life of a military connected child because my father served for almost 30 years, but I will not ever know what it is like to be a service member because I did not serve in uniform in the military. And so I think sometimes because of the experience, because of the stress, because of the strain that can come when you have a child that has a diagnosis, that has a disability, that has neurodivergence, because it it comes, it can be stressful. It's stressful for them too. You sometimes make that your identity. And it's like, you have to separate. Oh, it's so hard as a mother not to lose our identity. Right. That's our only job. (laughs) Exactly. And so I think sometimes it's difficult for them to step outside of that and understand that. Also, sometimes I like to liken it to they can't step outside of it because they have yet to recognize their own neurodivergence. <laughs> yes. And also, I think, I mean, I don't want to, I've, I've seen a lot of people where they'll use special interests from other neurotypes. I don't, I feel like it's cultural appropriation at this point, but mm-hmm. I think it's important for parents to realize that, you know, neurodiversity is hard. Mental health is hard. Mm-hmm. but capitalism is making it harder and you need to remember that not everything has to make money you can have a hobby you don't have to be a child to do art once a day you know if your kid has a special interest share that interest with them and remember your own interests mm-hmm. and you know like because my daughter like i'm selfishly so happy she loves sailor moon like i did <laughs> But my son, he's really into space. So what do we do? We look up museums to go to. We look up books that are about space. And we don't make it some like, oh, well, you know, my son, he has this special thing. No. We're like, this is our family. Like, we love science. And we embrace it. And I want people to know that that's okay. You don't have to tell your whole story. You know, when you go out in public and people give you strange looks, they're gonna. You know, let them have their strange looks. But... Your importance is your family, that they're regulated. You don't have to be happy all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, well, I mean? I, yeah, I mean, I had a situation where, and I, I told my husband and my sister and they, they were like, oh my goodness, I'm surprised that's all you said. So <laughs> I went to, I went to Subway and I went to get um, my son's Subway order and he doesn't eat anything on it, but there, there's meat, cheese, and then we get bacon on the side because he loves Question, bacon. is it ham and cheese? Because that's my kids. It's turkey. Oh. <laughs> yes, it's turkey. So he, so I'm doing the order and there's a guy that's always there and he, he's used to making it. So he already knows. So I come up, he's like, kids, turkey, provolone, bacon on the side. Like, yes. And so he happens to be like in the back. So there's another girl and- so that he comes out, she doesn't know that he knows the order. And mm-hmm. um, I've already told her. And so he goes, and then she's like, yeah. And she wants bacon on the side. She's actively making a face about it. And I was like, and I took a deep breath and I go, yeah, because my son's autistic and he doesn't like it touching. 
Yes. Her face immediately was like, oh my gosh, I'm so, like, I'm so sorry. You know, it's like, but I did that as a teaching moment because I have no shame in that order. He has no shame in that order. I've seen grown adults order like a ham and cheese from Subway with nothing on it. And I'll tell you, that's a corporation. Yes, that's a corporation problem because when I was a server, (laughs) she's expressing her distaste for the system because she's already have anxiety of like, how am I going to put this in? But also I've seen autistic adults where they have to say, oh, this is for my kid for people to take them seriously. It's like, just normalize people having special, you know what I'm saying? You might be allergic. That, that no. part, and, and that part, and I am, and I did not know because my sister, like I would say she's, we talk about like, she's particular with her eating and my husband's particular with their eating. So we thought, but really I am. No. What it is, is <laughs> because they try new things and they eat all types. Of, and I'm like, this is what I yep. eat. And so one time I said that to her, I said, well, you're pursuing, she said, no, 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 no. She was like, I like my things made a certain way. Oh, She was like, you're particular about what you eat and you will tell them, I want this dish, but I want you to take these six things out of it. And she was like, and so I got used to doing that for myself. And I think that directness, I didn't care. Yeah. I was like, this is what I do and I don't eat. And I, and you know, so with him, I had never, I hadn't had that experience yet. And I always say that mama bear kind of kicked in of like, it doesn't matter why I'm ordering it. Like, yes. That's not your business. Do <laughs> <laughs> but I did that too, because she was young mm. and I did that as a point of saying, and I always say this, me and my sister, we both have worked in the food service industry. And I so we've so been there. We know. We know. So we know. <laughs> and I tell them, I say like, sometimes I use these honestly as teachable moments because I'm like, you're not going to always get a customer that's as nice about it. Yes. Like you're going to get people that are offended and because they are offended, they're going to take it to another level. And so I want you to know that you need to keep that in mind when something like this occurs. And so like, that's really the way I approached it. But yeah, I was just like, and then I've seen her since. She's made it since. She's very polite. <laughs> but I, I was like, I was like, I need this. I was like, I'm going to say this because I don't think you understand. Like, that could be why. Now that it's in your business. But you need to keep that in mind when you come across these type of situations. Well, and I'll piggyback off of a podcast I was listening to the other day about inclusivity. But people don't. No, and you don't, you shouldn't be scared to interact with somebody just because you find out they're autistic or that they have a disability because you don't know how that interaction is going to be until it happens. And it's okay to have bad interactions. You don't want to go through life avoiding them because just like Destiny said, you're going to learn something new. It's going to help you in the future to deal with somebody else. Ultimately, if you enjoyed this episode, then please like subscribe, and feel free to leave a review, but also send this to somebody that it might be able to help. So remember, if you want to connect with Destiny, please reach out to her website or her on Instagram. If you like me, you can still follow me on most social media platforms. Uh, This episode has been very cathartic for me. I thank you so much for joining us, Destiny. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'll have to have you again because I'm sure we're still going to, you know, I have hope for education, but it's going to have to change. (laughs) (laughs) It's got to make some changes. 
But until next time, this is the neuroaffirming parent signing off. Oh.